Let's start. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. So in tonight's Dhamma talk, I will talk about an issue that is an issue or even a problem for most meditators, if not for all meditators. It's about thoughts, the thinking mind. The mind likes to think, at least mine. And as I have come to know, most other minds do so as well. I think you can relate to it, can't you? So the ability of the mind to think seems to have no boundaries. The mind can produce good thoughts, bad thoughts, can produce thoughts that hurt, compassionate thoughts, cruel thoughts, joyful thoughts, loving thoughts, or nonsense thoughts, murderous thoughts, joyous thoughts, and so on. The list could go on for a long time. And so these thoughts, they can either be uplifting or depressing. These thoughts can take us even either up to heaven or down to hell. The nature of the mind is to think, to produce thoughts. And the mind does this in abundance, actually more than we like it. When I started to practice meditation many, many, many years ago, I thought that the aim of meditation was to have no thoughts and to have no physical pain. So this was my notion of enlightenment. And after about three years of attending meditation retreats and sitting at home, I was able to sit for about one hour without too much physical discomfort. So I thought I was already quite close to the goal. Well, to get rid of the thoughts, this seemed a bit more difficult. And as a matter of fact, when I discovered, especially during intensive meditation retreats, how much my mind was thinking, I was quite shocked. But nevertheless, I was quite confident that I also would be able to tackle this problem within the next three years or so. And now, 
more than 30 years later, and after much more intensive meditation practice, I have developed a much more realistic picture of practice. And I can tell you a secret. Pain or discomfort still happens in meditation practice. Thoughts, of course, as well. And by the way, even the Buddha, after his complete liberation, was still experiencing pain. Because of some back pain he had one day, he asked the Venerable Ananda to give the talk to the monks instead of him, so that he could go, um, go and lie down to take some rest. Or we also know that the Buddha sometimes suffered from headaches. So, this more realistic picture of practice includes I have come to see that wanting to get rid of the thoughts is not the way out of suffering. This wanting to get rid of the thoughts, it just creates more tension, more agitation, more restlessness, resistance, and suffering. I also have come to see that it is actually impossible not to have any pain or unpleasant sensations. And I came to realize that the practice of vipassana meditation is actually not so much about the thoughts, but rather about the attitude we have towards the thoughts. And that it is all about to get the, to get to know the nature of thoughts, the nature of the thought process, which means to understand the nature of the thinking mind. And so if we come to understand the nature of thoughts, we also come to understand the nature of the mind, because thoughts are happening in the mind. Thoughts, they can be compared to clouds passing in the sky. Who has not uh, watched clouds on a nice day, maybe lying on the grass, looking up in the sky, and just watching the clouds in the sky to see then passing maybe just little tiny fluffy thought, um, clouds, you know, that kind of form, wander a bit, and then dissolve again. At other times, there were maybe big cumulus clouds, or other times the whole sky is gray with a thick layer of clouds. And so 
watching these clouds, we notice that they are never static. They are always somehow moving and they are changing in shape, they are changing in size. And we see they are coming and they are going. And we also see that the blue sky is always present. And even if there are clouds in the sky, when a cloud has dissolved, there is the blue sky. And even if there is a thick gray layer of clouds, at one time they disappear and then again there is the blue sky. Or nowadays, as we have the possibility to fly on an aeroplane, we may start under a thick gray layer of clouds, then pass through the clouds, and then above the clouds there's just the spotless blue sky. And so we know that even if the sky is full of clouds, behind the clouds there is the blue sky. It's always present. And so likewise, when we watch the mind, when we watch thoughts, we see different kind of thoughts. The greedy ones, the angry ones, worrying thoughts, fantasies, and so on. And also here we see that these thoughts are not static. They too, they are always moving, also changing shape and size. Thoughts are also coming and going. And so, whatever thought has arisen in the mind, once it has passed, it's gone. It's no longer there. So whatever thought passes through the mind, it does not spoil the mind. The mind's natural clarity and purity is always there. So like myself in the past, many meditators think that thoughts should not be happening during their meditation practice, especially during their vipassana meditation practice. And often then meditators equate a good meditation with a meditation with little thoughts, and a bad meditation is one with many thoughts. And then the common reaction to thoughts arising in meditation is one of dislike or aversion, frustration, also anxiety or worry, even doubts may arise. So the common reaction is thoughts shouldn't arise, I need to get rid of them. So somehow thoughts are seen as an enemy and an enemy has to be get rid of or eradicated. 
or sometimes when meditators come to an interview, I hear the comment, I still have thoughts. And what I think then is, oh good, great that you're still that you still can think. <laughs> but of course, then I don't, don't tell the meditator straight into their face. So imagine what would happen if you were able to get rid all of your thoughts. To get rid of all of your thoughts, including the necessary and skillful ones. So as I said, the general attitude towards thoughts is one of dislike, aversion, resistance, and frustration. And then on top of that, this is often also accompanied by judgment. Judgment about ourselves judging ourselves to be a bad meditator because we are still having many thoughts. Or judging ourselves uh, saying that we cannot do the practice right. Or judging us to be a failure. And then there is also the judgment about the thoughts. You know, thoughts are bad, they are a nuisance, or thoughts, they are counterproductive, judging them to be an enemy because thinking that these thoughts are preventing me from being mindful. So in order to progress in our meditation practice, we really need to create a more conducive environment regarding thoughts. To this end, we need to carefully observe thoughts and the thought processes so that we come to deeply understand what thoughts are, to deeply understand the nature of the thought processes. So we need to understand the nature of thoughts in particular and to understand the nature of mind in general. But because we have never really have a close look at these thoughts, we do not really understand them. So when we change our attitude towards thoughts, once we actually carefully start to look at these thought processes, what do we come to discover? One thing we clearly come to see is that thoughts are coming and going. This seems all, almost too trivial, <laughs> but it's really like so to have the direct personal experience of seeing a thought popping up, staying with it, and then seeing how it disappears, 
it's something different than just intellectually understanding, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, thoughts come and go. We also notice and have to acknowledge thoughts are part of our experience. They are an experience that happens to us, be it in meditation, be it in our day-to-day life. Or another discovery we can make is that thoughts are not the self. It's not the me, it's not the I that is thinking. Or else we come to discover that the basic nature of the mind, namely its clarity, it's not lessened or destroyed by the thoughts. The mind can be compared to water. Water, in its essence, is basically clean and clear. Muds or sediments or other impurities can temporarily darken or pollute the water, but we can filter such impurities away and so then restore its natural clarity. If the water weren't naturally clear, then no matter how many filters we would use, it would not become clear. So, if we, if we really want to have a close look at this thought, thought processes, if you really want to have an intimate look at them, then we need to befriend these thoughts. We really must make friends with the thoughts. Because only when we have a kind or benevolent attitude towards something, then we are open to have a close look at it or to engage with it. So we really need to become at ease with our thoughts. If not, then we will, we will always be the slaves of our thoughts. And in this way, it's the thoughts that run our lives. So then, when we are ready, when we are kind enough to have a close and intimate look at the thoughts, what will we discover? We come to see that thoughts are a natural function of the mind, something the mind does. We come to see that the mind has the capacity to think. It's like other sense organs. They have their own particular capacity. So for example, the eyes, they have the capacity to see. The nose has the capacity to smell. 
or the ears have the capacity to hear. So in regard to the thoughts, many meditators want to get rid of the thoughts. Want to get rid of this capacity that the mind has. Why don't want these meditators to get rid of the capacity to hear, which is the capacity of the ear? Why don't they want to get rid of the capacity to see, which is the capacity of the eyes? So we need to see that the capacity to think is helpful on a relative level. It's useful in our lives. Actually, it's necessary, necessary in our lives. You know, already to come here to this meditation retreat, you had to think a little bit. You had to plan, you had to organize, you had to take leave, you had to ask the neighbor to water your garden, and many more things that you were thinking. So it was very helpful that you made use of this capacity to think, to be here. So we also need to see the necessity of the mind's capacity to think, to see how it is helpful, how it is useful. And we also realize that for certain kind of meditations we actually use this capacity to think. So for example for our metta meditation we use this capacity to think we use the thoughts um, of cultivating loving-kindness. So the thought of, may I be happy and well? Or, may my teacher be at ease and in peace? So it's with the help of these thoughts that we cultivate and strengthen the quality of loving-kindness. So here, thought comes in very helpful, tremendously helpful. And likewise, you know, for other kinds of meditations, and as you know, during this retreat, we will have a look at the four protective meditations, metta being one of them. So we use thoughts in order to cultivate loving-kindness, then also for the reflection on the Buddha's attributes. Uh, Buddhanusati, again here we use thought, reflections to uh, do this uh, meditation. Or then for the Asuba practice, reflection on the non-beauty of the body, again we use thoughts as a base for this practice. And also for the fourth protection, Maranasati, contemplation on death. Again, we contemplate on the fact that we die.
so we can make use of this capacity to think and so we try to, to think wholesome, beneficial, useful thoughts. You know, it's about that. That's not always the case, and especially during meditation practice, we come to see, come to be aware of many thoughts arising in our mind. Many of them are not so helpful, not so beneficial. Um, negative thoughts fueled by anger, aversion, craving, attachment, envy, anxiety, worry, and so on. And so, through the practice of vipassana meditation and having a close look at the mind, at the thoughts that arise in the mind, we come to see that many of these thoughts are conditioned by our habits, by our tendencies, or by our general attitude. So sometimes it can be quite frightening to see with what speed these thoughts arise. For example, we see a person having a nice coat and immediately the thought comes up, wow, what a nice coat, I'd like to have such one. So this thought being triggered by greed, wanting. <laughs> or we walk into the dining hall and then we smell soya sauce and the thought arises, oh no, don't they know I don't like soya sauce? Again, a thought popping up triggered by aversion, dosa. Or going outside, we put on our jacket and then we notice the thoughts, ah, the weather patterns are changing. Maybe, is this climate change? Oh, and my auntie will celebrate her 80th birthday next week. I should send a card. And actually, when I go home, I need to weed my garden. They take over. Thoughts triggered by delusion. Just plain delusion, ignorance. And so, as we have a close look at these many thoughts arising in our meditation, we can come to see the underlying tendency, you know, the greed or the anger or the aversion or the, uh, the mere delusion that uh, cause these thoughts to arise. Or we see certain sense impressions, seeing something, oh, already a thought appears. So to see that thoughts are also conditioned. They arise based on certain causes, conditions. Another thing that we discover, especially during a retreat, is that the mind comes up with any thought, any trivial thought will do. 
because the mind is quite deprived of sense impressions, not talking, not uh, watching TV, not going online, not making telephone calls, and so on. And so the mind is kind of starving. <laughs> and so to entertain itself, it comes up with all these uh, trivial thoughts. You know, we get up in the morning and um, maybe thinking, should I do the laundry today or tomorrow? And maybe I should take the oat porridge today for breakfast, not only the toast, and so on. <laughs> Just anything trivial will do for the mind to get at least some uh, input, some entertainment. Or we also notice certain thoughts occur again and again and again and again, like a loop or an endless tape playing. And it's so difficult to get out of it. At one time when I was practicing in, in Burma, a friend of mine was also there practicing and at the end of our intensive meditation practice when we started talking again she told me that during that retreat she was quite shocked how many thoughts her mind was producing all the time and so she started to call herself chatterbox So the mind is used to think. It has become a strong habit of the mind. And because it's such a strong habit for the mind to think, it's much, much easier and much more fun to be lost in a thought than to be really present. And a meditator in one of the... Uh, in a, in a retreat, he said in an interview, it's much more fun to be lost in a thought than to be present. Sometimes thoughts can also be an escape in order to not be present, especially to avoid an unpleasant or painful experience. Yes, in fact, it's so much more fun to be lost in a nice fantasy or a nice scenario than to face this, uh, this strong pain in the back. Thoughts, however, they also can be a source of energy. You know, sometimes the mind is kind of dull, uh, the mind is lacking energy and at such times the mind may open what I call the energy drawer and starts to think like to produce a nice fantasy a nice scenario and so this makes the mind quite energized it, you know, it takes interest in creating that fantasy and uh, it's going well so then energy starts flowing again. And so with that dull and sleepy mind, um, 
uh, can disappear. Then there is another kind of thought that we must be careful of because these thoughts are about the Dhamma, you know, thinking about the Dhamma, teaching of the Buddha. And these kind of thoughts, they can be quite compelling because it's like these thoughts come along and they say, you know, we are not the usual uh, trivial thoughts. No, no, we are thoughts about the Dhamma and we are really uh, good thoughts. You know, if you think me, uh, then you will get a better understanding of the Dhamma. You will uh, deepen your wisdom. Or if you think us, then uh, we will give you extraordinary insights. You know, no problem of thinking us, these kind of Dhamma thoughts. But again, it's just thinking. And deep understanding and wisdom never arises by thinking. It arises through direct and personal experience. So then here we must be very careful to not be seduced by these kinds of thoughts. So is it possible that we really open up to the thoughts that we have a friendly and benevolent attitude towards these thoughts? If you are able to do so, that means if we no longer resist our thoughts or whatever is going on in the mind, but if we really can accept them as part of our experience, then we can feel a tremendous sense of ease or relaxation. You know, in a way, it's so freeing to have, quote-unquote, to have the permission to have thoughts. So then we are freed from the compulsion to fight the thoughts, to resist the thoughts, or to suppress them. We are free from the notion that we need to get rid of the thoughts, that we need to make them disappear. And so this can be such a tremendous relief. And for me, it was also a great relief when I heard that even the Buddha had still thoughts. Somehow then I realized I had assumed that the Buddha, with his uh, complete liberation, had no more thoughts. So after many, many years of practice and after many years of fighting the thoughts, I came across a discourse by the Buddha that brought this great relief. It was the discourse called Thoughts Are Known by the Buddha. So at one time, a group of monks were sitting together 
after they had had the meal. And this was kind of the usual thing that the monks did. After the meal, they would sit together and uh, discuss the Dhamma, topics of the Dhamma. And so on that particular day, they started to praise the wonderful qualities of the Buddha. And not long after they started to praise the Buddha's qualities, the Buddha actually came to the group. He did sometimes, so he wanted to see what they were talking about, or maybe to clarify uh, things that they were not so clear about. <coughs> and so the Buddha sat down on the seat that was already prepared for him, and then the Buddha asked them what they were, what they were talking about. And so the monks said that it was about uh, the Buddha's qualities. And when the Buddha heard that, he said to Venerable Ananda that he should explain these qualities in greater detail. And so then Venerable Ananda started to relate a discourse that the Buddha had given uh, earlier in which he spoke in greater detail about these qualities. And so when Venerable Ananda had finished, the Buddha added something. So he said, Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. So the word Tathagata is a word that the Buddha used when he was referring to himself. So the Buddha continued to say, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Isn't it great to hear? For me, as I said, it was a tremendous relief. There is a well-known Tibetan Buddhist meditation teacher. His name is Mingur Rinpoche. And he said, The beauty of meditation is to become aware of thoughts, of the process of thinking, to understand the mind's nature to think. It's really about to understand the nature of the mind, thoughts being a manifestation of the mind. So we need to understand them. So being aware of the thought 
processes. And as I said in the instructions, it's about the thought processes as such, not about the story, not about the content of the thoughts. So when we are able to really be aware of these thoughts, thought processes, to see their nature, we can have very deep and liberating insights, can understand many important things. For example, we come to see and understand that thoughts are simply happening, that they are a natural occurrence in the mind. You know, it's neither good nor bad to have thoughts. They are simply part of our experience as human beings or part of meditating human beings. So, as we are mindful of what is happening in our body, in our mind. So we can notice, for example, the appearance of a thought. Earlier in the practice, we might not be aware of that moment when a thought appears. We simply know when a thought is already happening. But later on, when mindfulness is stronger, the mind more deeply concentrated, we can be present in that moment when a thought pops up, when it appears. And then we also know its presence and we can notice its disappearance when it just ends. So you know then, this is what the Buddha said. Thoughts are known as they arise as they are present, as they disappear. And so this is coming in touch with impermanence. The Pali word for it is anicca. So we come, we come to see and understand that a thought is an impermanent mental process. A thought is not a lasting entity. It has no substance. It's just a fleeting, impermanent process, like anything else. Or, when we are mindful of what is happening, then we may be, we, not, we may painfully note that a thought appears even though we didn't want to think the thought, even though we had no inclination to think that particular thought. Or we painfully notice that even we want a certain thought to stop right now, to disappear on the spot, it does not do it. And so with this we come in touch with the impersonal nature of the thoughts. So we come to see and understand the impersonality of the thoughts, of the thought processes. 
realizing that we have no absolute control over the thoughts. So seeing this impersonal nature means we see and understand anatta, the not-self nature, realizing that we lack this absolute control. Or else, when we are mindful of what is happening, mindful of the thoughts uh, arising in our mind, we somehow notice that they have a life of their own. And we come to see that they can be such a nuisance, or that they can be such a torment, that they can create so much havoc and suffering. And so then we become more and more disenchanted with the thoughts. We come to see um, their unsatisfactory nature. You know, we just see how much dukkha they can create. So this means that we come and see dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of these mental processes. So in this way, when we really see and deeply understand that thoughts, processes in the mind are impermanent, that they are not self, that they are uh, not fully satisfying, this is how we can understand the three general characteristics. Characteristics of anicca, dukkha and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self or impersonality. And they are called general characteristics because they can be understood in each of our experiences. We can see these three characteristics manifested in our body, in our bodily experiences. They are all impermanent, they do not last, they are all basically unsatisfactory and they are all not-self, all are impersonal processes um, happening through causes and conditions. So thoughts, they can be the basis for this deep understanding of the three general characteristics. So when we observe thoughts, you know, there are different possibilities. We can get identified with the thought and then be carried away by it. Or we can resist the thought, not wanting it, wanting to get rid of the thought, which causes frustration. Or 
we can observe, be mindful of the movement of the mind, like seeing these thoughts and also emotional states arising, being present, passing away. So being mindful of these thoughts, emotions in the mind, just seeing them as a natural occurrence. And so not to get identified with them, not to resist them, not to fight them, but just knowing them, seeing them, being aware of them without reacting to them as much as possible. So to be aware of thoughts in our meditation practice is basically not different from the way we observe, we are mindful of any other objects. Not different from being mindful of a painful sensation or being mindful of a sound or being mindful of the lifting movement of the foot. So basically, being mindful of thoughts is not different from being mindful of any other object in our meditation practice, but with the thoughts, we must be a bit more vigilant. This is um, because of different reasons. We must be more vigilant because usually we easily get caught up in the content or the story of the thought. So we must be vigilant for it not to happen. We know we are so easily seduced by a thought or an emotion, a story. Another reason uh, to be more vigilant when observing thoughts is because we easily identify with the story of the thought. So then we take it so personal. And then as a result of taking it so personal, we immediately react in our habitual way. And so then very quickly, we find ourselves already in the reaction to the thought and not the original thought uh, anymore. So with our meditation practice, we should learn to simply rest in the awareness of a thought happening in the mind. Just be, full, be there, fully present, know it, see it, observe it. It's like an old man sitting on a bench watching children play in the playground. You know, the old man is no longer drawn into uh, this place. Too old, body too weak to engage in there. But the old man just sits there, watches the children play. So, observing thoughts might not feel like 
practicing meditation. Because somehow it runs against our ingrained notion of what meditation should be. Namely, to get rid of thoughts. Or to get rid of thoughts so that finally we can really meditate. I was told that the Tibetan word for meditation is gom, or something like this. I don't know whether my pronunciation is correct or not. But anyway, this word actually means to become familiar with. I think it's a nice way of putting it. To meditate is to really become familiar with whatever is happening in our body, in our heart and mind. So we want to become familiar with everything, also with our thoughts. So then we could ask, well, what is the difference between ordinary thinking and having thoughts in meditation? Well, awareness, mindfulness makes all the difference. So if we are lost in a thought, if we are carried away in a thought, if we are overwhelmed by a thought, if we are identified with a thought, then we are not meditating. Then it's an ordinary thought. But if we are aware of the fact that a thought is happening, if we are mindful of the thinking process, then we are meditating. So it's a fine line but it makes such a huge difference. So with our meditation practice, <clears throat> especially with our Vipassana meditation practice, we do not want to destroy the faculty of thinking. Far from it. But what we want to do with the practice of Vipassana med meditation is to understand true nature of thought. And with the growing understanding of what kind of thoughts run through our mind, wholesome ones, unwholesome ones, so then we are eager to weaken and eventually overcome the unwholesome thoughts, the, the unskillful ones, the harmful ones. And we really want to cultivate and strengthen the wholesome thoughts, what is beneficial and useful. And so with this understanding, this brings a great relief and it brings so much freedom because then we are not so much run by our thoughts anymore. So to finish this talk, I want to quote Chetsunma Tenzin Palmo, an English nun, having been ordained for a long time in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. 
She said, Imagine that there is a loudspeaker attached to your mind and everybody could hear whatever everybody else is thinking. <laughs> Don't you think you still would think so many thoughts? I probably wouldn't. <laughs> so let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.